few weeks ago, months ago, actually, uh, Dan was talking about how, in one of his sermons, how we should we should go back and and reread the reread some of the scriptures we're really familiar with, and and to not just gloss over those things, but to to kind of let God bring that alive in our lives again. So then I thought, well, what's something that I really like that I should read again? So then I said, well, I'm going to read the Gospel of John. And I'm sure I've read the Gospel of John more times than I've read any other book in the Bible, just because I really appreciate how John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think that's, it's interesting. I don't think he's saying that Jesus loved him more than the rest of the disciples. I mean, Peter was maybe difficult, but John, John wasn't necessarily number one in Jesus' heart. And, uh, and I think that like, he, he's being humble. He's trying to say, I'm just some guy. I don't want this glory. I don't want this book to be about me because all the glory needs to go to Jesus and to God. And it's, it's not about John. He's just the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's unnamed. And I think that's kind of neat that he, he finds that identity in Christ. Um, but that's not what the sermon's about. So, but what I did find when I started reading John, uh, it didn't take very long for me to get to chapter 3, uh, verse 34. Oh, I forgot my clicker at the back. If you bring it up, I could click myself. It's plugged into the computer because it's charging. Anyway, so when I get that, I can change to the next slide that says the words of John 3:34. Right there. So it says that he, being God, gives the Spirit without measure. So when I read this and I thought, I think I can measure the Spirit in my life. I think I could like, put a limit on it. I could say I have this much Spirit in my life. And so if God's handing it out without measure, then there's something wrong with me. Uh, so when I was in college... So I went to Bible school, in case you guys didn't know that and everybody knows it. Um, we, we were talking in one of our classes about being filled with the Spirit and how we can be filled whenever we ask. And I'm sure this verse probably came up somewhere along there. And so this line came out of that talk, and really all I remember is this line from that talk uh, where the teacher said, um, like, fill my cup, Lord, like that can be our prayer. And I think the reason that I remember this line is because one of, the, one of the guys in my class thought it would be a good idea to then, in the middle of the night, sneak over to the girls' dorms and fill a whole bunch of cups with water and put them in front of their door so they couldn't get out without knocking over these cups. And then he made this sign that said, fill my cup, Lord. And so they couldn't they couldn't get out in the morning. I mean, it's girls, so they're waiting until two minutes before class starts because they just had to run across the parking lot. And so then they open the door and they can't get out, so they had to scale down the balcony and they were late for class, which is hilarious. So out of that, what I remembered, though, is that I just need to ask God to fill my cup. And I don't think I, don't think I do that very often, so that's... That's step one in the struggle. So if you turn in your Bible, if, I looked at the black one, it was page 302, 2 Kings chapter 13. I'm ready there, so I'll give you a second. There it is. 2 Kings 13. 
starting at verse 14. Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he was to die. Joash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said. And he opened it. Shoot, Elijah said. And he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared, You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, Take the arrows. And the king took them. Elisha told him, Strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it but now you will only defeat it three times. So, oh, I was going to flip through this. You could read along and I didn't. Next time, next time. Oh, next time. Oh, now I can't go backwards. Let's leave it. Oh, my picture disappeared. Anyway, it wasn't a good picture. It's fine. So, if you're unfamiliar, because this is something, I mean, I kind of always knew that that Kings and Chronicles shared a lot of the same stories. So when I read this, and I kind of wanted to know what was going on, so then I flipped over to Chronicles. There's my picture. So then, so then I thought, okay, well, let's, let's see what, what's going on at Chronicles. So Chronicles and Kings, yeah, like I said, they shared a lot of the same stories. What I learned that I thought was really neat is that in the Greek, um, like, so there's, there's a Greek translation to the whole Bible. In the Greek, the... Chronicles is called the things omitted, as in, like, the things that weren't written in Kings or in Chronicles. So that really clarified that for me, that if you're missing something when you're reading Kings, you can probably find some more information in Chronicles and vice versa. So I'll save you the trouble. We're not going to read the stuff in Chronicles, but I found this story where it talks about Joash. And so it says that, he became king when he was seven, which I'm sure was tough because who's ready to rule a nation when you're seven? I wouldn't let my six-year-old daughter anywhere near ruling a nation, so that would go terrible for everyone. But this is what happened for him. So he, he gets in, he steps into this role, and there's this priest, Yehoada, or something like that. I can't pronounce these guys' names. Anyway, so Joash is seeking his counsel, and and he gives some good things. They start rebuilding the temple. Everything is going good for, for Israel. And then this priest dies. And then Joash starts getting counsel from his officials. Things go sideways. They start worshiping other gods. And then, so God allows Aram to invade. And then God sends all these other prophets, Elisha being one of them, to try and steer them back to him. And so somewhere in that is where this story in Second Kings fits in. So somewhere along the line, Joash Mustard remembered, oh yeah, when I used to get counsel from this priest, things were going good. So maybe if I go find this prophet Elisha, things will go good, which is logical. So that's what he did. He goes and he finds Elisha, and Elisha tells him, I want you to shoot an arrow out this window to the east. And that's probably the direction that the Arameans would have been invading from. 
So if they had been close enough to see this arrow coming, that would have been a declaration of war, right? If some king or some guy, like, you're going to know where the king is and he shoots an arrow at you, you're going to think, oh, he's ready to fight now. Let's do this thing. Um, so whether they were within range or not, there's obviously a spiritual declaration that's made where Elisha says, you're going to win this battle, this next battle at Aphek. This is yours. God's going to win it for you. Because at this point, um, at, at the beginning, like Joash comes in and he's crying about the chariots and the horsemen because they didn't have very many. They had gotten their butts kicked a few times. Their army was weak. And now, now he's got nothing and he's crying about it to Elisha. He thinks, we're going to lose. These guys are coming in. This is it for Israel. So then Elisha gives him this plan. So I think it's interesting that when he shoots the first arrow, Elisha's holding his hands, and they're doing it together. That's not what's happening in my picture, but that's what happened. So this must be, you know, the second, third, and fourth arrow. And, and then so he, he lets his hands off, and he says, okay, now, now you take these arrows and you shoot them out the window. We don't know how many arrows he had. I mean, he's the king of the nation, so he probably had, like, an obscene amount of arrows at his disposal. If he had them, you know, in the room, who knows? But he could have shot as many arrows as he wanted, basically. And he decides to shoot three. And then Elisha's not impressed. That wasn't enough. So he says, you're only going to get three victories. You're going to win this battle at Afek, and then you're going to win three more. But you should have shot five or six, and then you would have wiped them out. So God was offering, like, a full victory. Um, and if, if, God's, if God's promising you a victory in one thing, and he says, okay, repeat those steps again, I mean, shouldn't you just repeat them until you're sure that you've defeated that thing completely? But that's not what he decided to do. I mean, like, all he had to do was hit the ground with the arrow. He didn't say shoot bullseyes. He said hit the ground. I'm pretty sure if I gave one of my kids an arrow, I could give Merrick, he's my nine-month-old son, I could give him an arrow, think he could hit the ground. Eventually he's just going to drop it, it's going to hit the ground. Goal completed, battle won. And that's all he had to do. So, I don't know, maybe he got tired. Bows back then weren't like bows nowadays where they, they kind of help you pull. You had to do it. Maybe he got tired, four was enough. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so I think, I think this is a lot like our battle with sin. That when God's right there holding our hands, it's kind of easy not to sin. Um, and then, if you think about it, God, God has to total victory on the table for us with sin as well. Just like he did with Joash and, and fighting this army, he has, he has total victory on the table. Jesus won the battle over sin and death, the Bible says, on the cross. So if it's been won, then it's, it's there for us to take. We just need to stand in faith and say, I want to take that total victory. I want to fire as many arrows as I need to fire to get that. And so I think we're trying to attain sin through fighting for something rather than stepping into and receiving the victory God is offering. And so we often stand in the way of receiving the unmeasured outpouring of the spirit that God has for us. We don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. Now I can't do it. Oh, too far. Oh, no. That's an, oh, okay. Well, you saw it earlier. It was up there.
So yeah, I, I think the slide said, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. And the idea that, that if we stand in the victory Christ has for us and we fight from there, it's a lot easier to win rather than trying to fight against these things over and over and over again. Another way that you could say it um, would be hunger. Like how hungry was Joash for this victory? And do you want to destroy the enemy or do you want to just push them back? Like, Joash just kind of wanted to get Aram out of Israel. He didn't want to destroy them. Whereas God's, and well, Elijah says, I want you to destroy these guys. I want them gone off the face of the earth, out of here. And that's what God wants for us with sin too, right? But that's not, we just kind of want to push it away, put it in a closet, see what happens later. So if we shift our perspective, the Bible says that as we get close to Jesus, he gets close to us. That's John 15, 4 taking notes. The Bible also conveys this concept that sin can't exist in the presence of God. And so like Habakkuk 1.3, for example, says that God can't even look on evil. So if sin can't exist in the presence of God, and if the closer we get to Jesus, the more he gets close to us, then you could logically come to the conclusion that if I focus on getting close to Jesus, then sin's not going to have any place in my life. So the focus then shifts from fighting with sin and fighting with sin and fighting with sin to I'm just going to spend time with Jesus and then sin doesn't have any room. Sin doesn't have a place. Romans 14.23 says that, uh, well, it's Paul defining faith and he says anything that's not from faith is sin. And that's, that's Joash's issue. He didn't have the faith that God was going was gonna to defeat the Arame- Arameans for him. He thought... I just need to push them out of Israel and it'll be okay. So it's, it's a faith, it's a hunger. I'm going to tell you another story. Stay in 2 Kings, but flip back a couple pages. I believe it's 292 if you have a black pew Bible. So like 10 pages back. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my boys as slaves. I've, I've slashed that. Here we go. Follow along. I'm going to read it up here. So I, uh. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me what, to, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her, her and her sons. They brought the jars to her as she kept pouring, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go and sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what's left. So the widow's obviously got to be somewhat familiar with Elisha. He wasn't just some guy walking down the street and she thought that she would harass him into helping her with her problem. She, she knows him. And maybe her husband and him were buddies because you know, he was a prophet too. So who knows? But I think you're in a good place if you're familiar with the local prophet. You know, like if, if you know Dan, you're in a good place. Uh, so it, it's unclear 
if Elijah decided to help her out of this relationship or if her humble plea motivated him to action. But for whatever reason, Elisha decides, I'm going to help this lady. He doesn't have to do very much. He kind of just gives her this plan. And so he says, okay, what do you have in your house? And the lady's probably already gone through this and said, I'm going to just start selling my stuff and see if I can pay off this debt to keep my sons. Because if someone's going to take your kids, you're going to do whatever you need to do. So she flips to this mental inventory, and it doesn't take long because she has nothing. And then she says, oh, yeah, and I have this little bit of oil. And the word in Greek here, or not Greek because this is the Old Testament, the word here that for, for little oil or small jar of oil is, like, super small, like probably less than this glass. She just has this little thing of oil. So I think, I think that's significant that they added that in or put that in because it shows that God's not limited by, by what we have to offer. Like, our tiny bit is enough for God to do something huge, life-changing. So, unlike Joash on the other side, who had this obscene amount of arrows at his disposal, most likely, and he didn't use them. So, it, it's not about what you have, what you can bring to the table, what you have to offer. It's about what God's going to do with that. Anyway, so Elisha then sends her to borrow every jar, every vessel, everything that she can get her hands on from her neighbors. He says, don't borrow just a few, which means get lots. And she probably clued in, oh, he's going to have me pour this oil into these things, and then he's going to bless it, and it's going to be great. Like, she probably clued into that, I would think. I maybe would have. Anyway, so she's more or less got the whole plan. And so Joash kind of got a bad deal because he didn't really get the plan. He just got told shoot arrows out the window. He didn't, he didn't get told, shoot a lot of arrows out the window. Like this lady got told, get a lot of jars. Uh, but he also didn't tell the widow that she would be able to fill everything that she borrowed. So there is still this, this step of faith that something's going to happen. And what's interesting is that Elisha's not there. She goes after and says, okay, I did this, I filled all the jars. It says that she closed the door behind her and her son. That means Elisha wasn't there. He gave her this plan and then went off and kept doing whatever he was doing. The miracle wasn't about Elisha. It was about God doing something for this lady and her boy. So I think that's neat. It's not, it's not about us. Or, like, miracles don't happen because I have Dan in my house. Miracle, Dan's been in my house and nothing special happened. So... It, it's not about having Elisha or this, this prophet there to do something. It's about God doing something. You just need God and a little bit of oil. So when, when the jars were full, I like to stand up there. So it says, um, so, so she asked for another jar, and then it says there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. So I think it's... It's super neat, at least to me, that the oil didn't stop flowing until someone announced that there was nowhere to put it. And I think that, maybe have a slide for that, yes. I think that's one of the limits of God, God pouring out to our life, is that we don't give him anywhere to put it. We don't provide a vessel. We didn't borrow enough. We don't have anything to pour it into. Then he can't 
pour it out. Once, once all the cups are full, there's nowhere to put it. So a quick comparison between Joash and the widow is that Joash was kind of corrupt and backsliding. If you read the whole story in Chronicles, things were bad. And it's only a chapter, so you should read it. Um, but then, so he humbles himself and seeks God. And, but he lacks the faith to fully give control to God over the situation. And he only gets a partial reward. The widow is out of options. And unless God or Elijah steps in to do something, then she's going to lose her boys. Which I'm sure as a mom, well, at least as a dad, like this is an awful situation. Much worse than losing my country. So I would think... She's at her the rock bottom, and so she's, she's in a very humbling situation. She comes to, to Elisha, and she's got the hunger, the hunger and the faith to, do, to say, like, whatever you need me to do, I'm going to do it because I'm not losing my boys. And so he comes up with this. This is a ridiculous plan if you think about it. You're going to take this much oil and pour it in the 50 jars or whatever she borrows, and that's going to be able to pay for her debt. Which this is most likely olive oil, which is like one of the super consumable things. It'd be like trying to sell gasoline nowadays. Like it's easy. Anybody can sell gasoline. So she gets, you know, this reward and in, in a full measure. So whenever I read this story, it makes me think of uh, when Jesus feeds the multitudes, because you've got oil, which is used to make food, and it gets multiplied. So it makes me think of food. So, uh, one of these stories happens in John, and like I said, I was starting to read through John when I was thinking about this, and so I got to John 6, where one of these stories happens, and in verse 11, I think I have it up there, nope, that's the end of my life. Anyway, so in, in John 6, 11, it says that as, as Jesus was handing out the food, he gave them as much as they wanted. So, he didn't, like, this is God, the creator of the universe, he designed human beings. He could have done a calculation and said, okay, I know this guy works as a carpenter and he did this much work this morning before he came to my prayer meeting at the hill and so he needs these many calories and he already had breakfast, so minus this and I, I'm going to give him this much bread and this much fish. And he could have done the math and said, this is what you need. And then gone to the next person, this is what you need. And just handed it out like that. But that's not what he did. He said, I'm going to hand it out as much as they wanted. And then there was some left over. So there, there would have been people there that were thinking, oh, like, I saw that boy go up there and give him just a little bit. I know that they didn't start with a lot. And there's no way that this tiny bit is going to feed all these people. So I'm just going to take a tiny morsel. I'm going to have a little bit. And that guy would have got as much as he wanted, that little bit. Just like Joash, he got as much as he wanted, just that little bit, that partial victory. Whereas there would have been people like the widow that said, I'm hungry. I'd skip breakfast so I'd get a front row seat at this thing. So I'm going to take a lot. I'm going to have two loaves and two fish just for me. And they got as much as they wanted. So the principle for us then is that you get as much as you want. God's handing out the spirit without measure. He's not measuring it. He's saying, how much do you want? And he just starts pouring, and you've got to have the vessels to catch it. So, like, the widow could have only gotten a few vessels and ended up next month that rent was due, her bills came in, and now she's in need again, 
and Elisha's six towns over, he's not going to help. So she's got to come up with a new plan. But she had faith that God would provide exceedingly and abundantly more than she could ever imagine. And so he did. Elisha just wanted to get Aram out of Israel. He wanted this problem to go away. And God offered to wipe them out. But Elisha, or Joash, wasn't, wasn't in a place where he wanted that. He wasn't hungry enough to get rid of them completely. So they were both offered more than they expected. Um, and they, they received as much as they wanted. So it all comes down to this question, and I'll leave you with this. How hungry are you for God to do something in your life? Thank you.